Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Ingenni. And today we're going to talk about Agile's approach to risk management. And Luca, you have very strong points of view on this. <laughs> yeah, I do. Essentially, this is literally my point of view, that Agile is just an expression of risk management. Like, what is it good for? Why do you do all of this rigmarole of like stand-ups and sprints and, and all of the other stuff? It's really to control your project risk. Make sure you're not building the wrong product. Make sure that you can actually build what you're intending to build from a technical point of view, et cetera, et cetera, and, and not paint yourself into a corner, I guess. So we were talking before the show about trying to break up risk into different categories. And I think maybe that's useful to explore um, explore first. Uh, so maybe walk us through the, the three types of risk that we came up with. Yeah, so just to name them all briefly. So we've, we've come up with process or execution risk. We've come up with product risk and we've come up with technical risk. So let's, let's go through those. What's technical risk? Technical risk is, can we build this? Like, do we know how to build the thing that we, that we envision? Can it be built in the first place? Even by people who are smarter than us, maybe. Mm -hmm. Then there's product risk. Um, even if we can pull it off, even if we can build it, does anyone care? Can we get anyone to buy it? So are we creating value for somebody? And then lastly, we have process or execution risk. Uh, can we actually like internally work together in such a way that we end up with a product that delights customers? Right. And that last one, uh, so, so that may kind of sound like technical risk in that we don't know if we, <laughs> you know, the risk of not building something, but I think the two are, the two are separate. Technical is, yeah, we don't know if we can build this. And the process or execution risk is that risk of wasting a whole lot of money, time, and effort that kind of goes into your organizational black hole and a product doesn't come out the other side. We know we can build it. We, you know, it's, I don't know, some little embedded system that's, we've built them before, but for some reason our company has lost the ability to actually ship things. And it's the risk of getting nine months down the line, you're out of budget and you haven't actually shipped a product. Exactly. And and I suppose you could claim that this is product risk, but I think you're yeah. right in saying that this is actually something distinct. Yeah. That you need to guard against, you know, separately, right? Right. So how do we actually tackle each of these types of risk? Well, fundamentally what, what Agile says is you build feedback loops and you use them. So you iterate in very short iterations. You show your MVPs, your prototypes, whatever, to your customers. You solicit feedback from them. So that's that's essentially product feedback. And through the process of iteratively building this product, you, you approach the technical risk. Like, can I build this? Can I build this? And you try to limit or manage risk by saying we we force ourselves to keep delivering incremental product uh, steps that already capture some value. Like if we've built half of a product that delivers value, then nobody can take this away from us. We've already got something. 
Not all of it yet, of course. But we are we are much further than we would be in a traditional waterfall process, for instance, where like we don't deliver until we're done. Well, what happens if we never quite get to done? Or if the, the usual thing happens where like the first 90% of your project take up the first 90% of the time and the remaining 10% of your project take up the other 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it have been a lot better if you had shipped your 90% project after 90% of the time and made some revenue that, that you know, allowed you to, to struggle through the remaining 10%? Right. And, and often that, that's, uh, you know, I, I think we've talked about this in the past on the, on the project or on the podcast where you'll give me in these meetings where everyone says, how, how, what percent complete are you? And they say 90%. And then they come back the next week and it's still 90%. And they come back the next week and it's still 90%. And the reason is, is, is they're discovering new hidden or invisible work that basically every, everyone forgot to account for. Um, but it can apply to say a lot of different features. You know, if you, if you make the very fundamental mistake of you, the development team thinks done is I've coded it, but no one's actually tested it or verified that it worked or integrated it into the final You are product. not done until it runs in production. Correct. Full stop. Correct. So getting the minute, getting the, the smallest set of features fully done is how you manage both, both that certainly manages process or execution risk. That's, that's absolutely how you manage that. The product risk, that's also like the sooner you get to done and selling is when you get the feedback from users of will they actually pay for it? If there are specific aspects to your product that you don't know if the user was going to like, if you can build um, what I'll call a prototype early on where you can show it to a user, it's not in a sellable condition, but you want feedback on a specific feature. If you're making some embedded device and you want to know, you know how it fits in their hand and whether they'll actually be comfortable holding it, you could come up with a plastic bunch of plastic models that you could never sell, but they'll give you feedback on that specific aspect of your product from real users early on. Um, that and actually shipping something as soon as possible are the two ways you manage product risk. Yeah, and I, I think there's something uh, that that deserves to be highlighted about your example, which is that you know this is this is just engineering common sense, isn't it? Like if you are worried about how well something fits in your user's hands, well, you you whittle something out of wood or whatever and you stick it in the hand and you ask them, well, how does it feel? This is sort of this is so much older than agile. This is just this is just plain old common sense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um and I think this deserves to be pointed out. I, I had a conversation about this just yesterday with uh, somebody who who was who started their career at, at Western Digital, just when Western Digital was trying to become an agile organization. And there was a lot of resistance from the old guard, you know, people who had been engineers who had been at Western Digital for like 30 years and uh, were really good at old fashioned engineering, you know, really slow paced, but rock solid. Uh, they said, well, this is, you know, this is just ridiculous. You want us to to hurry and, and not pay attention. No, I don't think this is the point at all. I think that, you know, we're doing things that have been a common, have been common sense long ago and we're just applying them very like rigorously, right? 
If prototypes are good, let's make more prototypes. If talking to our users is good, let's talk to them more. And sooner. If testing our stuff, yeah, exactly. If testing our stuff is good, let's test all the time. This is essentially getting into extreme programming, but you know, I, I just like this idea of of turning all the knobs to eleven and saying, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> that's what you will get, ladies and gentlemen, if you hire Luca. He will come in and turn all your knobs to eleven. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So, so talk about maybe some of the the specific embedded manifestations of of risk and how we can tackle those. Yeah, that's that's fun because um, I think uh, fundamentally embedded or, or anything that has to do with physical products is just playing in hard mode. Um, the risks are just so much higher, aren't they? Because your product touches so many more different domains, because prototypes aren't free. Like software prototypes are free, but but physical prototypes just aren't. It, neither in terms of money nor time. Mm-hmm. Um, Though actually, oh, that so so I'm really glad you said that. I because that's something I want to talk about. I have learned the lesson over and over through my career that people really are much more expensive than physical products and people and managers will, will use that point that you just made as a justification for not doing a prototype. Well, it's going to cost $10,000. And I look at the, how much money they are spending on a weekly basis on their engineering organization. And it's a lot higher than 10,000. I mean, 10,000 is almost the co- almost the weekly cost of a fully loaded engineer. Um, you so know, what you're saying you're, is a penny saved is a penny wasted. Yeah. I, I think people are, are, are penny wise and pound foolish in that sense of, yep. I would much rather spend the money early on expensive prototypes and get the feedback so that you actually can shave weeks, months, even longer off of your uh, delivery time, your, your whole development cycle time. Yes. And maybe if you're being smart and, dare I say it, agile about it, you can get away with much smaller, much cheaper prototypes and, and still get the same feedback. Right. Yeah. Like, like this whole episode is about identify the, the points of highest risk and build the cheapest, fastest prototype that addresses those particular items of risk. Um, and I, again, I don't, this isn't anything groundbreaking. I think most people would agree with that statement. I do think I have seen this pathology where managers and executives will worry about prototype costs on the order of thousands of dollars when they are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on their engineering time. Uh, and, and to me, that's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I completely agreed. So, but we started this this line of, of conversation talking about embedded. So I think the bottom line is that embedded is particularly susceptible to technical risk, just because, as we said, there are so many more different domains playing into it, you know, electrical, mechanical, software, um, potentially others. Mm-hmm. And because there is there is so much more variation in there, like, you know, software always behaves the same. 
physical systems? In theory, they should, I guess. But we all know how that turns out. And of course, embedded actually has some other types of risk that you don't that that, that you don't encounter in purely software products, such as supply chain risk. Like even oh. if you do everything right in your electrical design, all of a sudden you can't get your micro that you designed for anymore and the market is just sold out. Maybe there's a worldwide chip shortage that's been going on for two years. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I heard about that one. I did hear about that. And so that, yet again, you know, that is a risk that you should try and hedge against, for example, using agile practices by, you know, keeping yourself open to changing direction if you discover new things. For example, certain micros being sold out until 2024. Right. And this, and I think we've talked about this before, uh, at least from a software perspective, that from that principle of, you know, your hardware can change out from under you, which again was the case in the old fashioned world too. It's, uh, it's just that much more, uh, the stakes are that much higher nowadays during this worldwide chip shortage when you basically have to get whatever chips you can, you can find from the, from that first principle, trying to solve that problem. There are things you can do from a software perspective to make your software more adaptable where you can, again, a solid hardware abstraction layer, where you can then easily swap out a micro on the electrical side and it does not it does not have a large impact on your software that it's relatively easy to adapt your software to this new electrical reality. I can't speak as intelligently to uh, you know how you would manage this the supply chain risk from the on the hardware side. Um you know, or essentially, you know, as as a business, whether in this new environment, I don't know whether you stock up, you try to stock up on chips more than you otherwise would to hedge against that risk. Um, I don't know that I can speak really intelligently about that, but certainly, well, that but, is one option. Like there are different options. You have the option of saying I I become very hardware agnostic, like you know, big engine, little engine, whatever, just stick it in, it'll run. I mean, you know, I'm 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 being a little <laughs> over eager here, but you know, this is one approach you could take, or you could, or you could do something else, and you could say, you know, I'm I'm going to stock up on stuff. Also, a risky proposition, right? Because what what happens if you bet on the wrong horse? Like you think you're going to get away with this micro, and then it turns out actually you don't. You run out of memory or something. Right, right. I think I think this is something where we should we should try to bring in a guest to talk about this because um, this is such a pertinent topic for the embedded systems industry right now. I think I know exactly yeah. who I'm going to ask. Perfect. All right, we will we will try to set that up. But again, certainly, I guess just the overall principle of <laughs> getting to done sooner and getting the product out a a you know, the minimum version out and into users' hands, um, I think will certainly, it, it may not solve your supply chain risk, but at least will give you confidence that you actually have the right part. And and the sooner you can answer that question, the sooner then you can be more confident to take steps like stocking up on chips now that you know the chip will actually satisfy your needs. Um, That's a good point. Yes. Um, exactly. So, I th I think this is exactly where you're getting at, right? You 
we we want to go through this process quickly. We want to have our shippable product quickly so that we can gather feedback. Because if we hear from our customers, hopefully via their wallet, that yes, this is actually a valuable product, um, then just like you say, we've taken all of that risk away. We now have certainty that this product in this configuration has a market. We can safely stock up on chips, for instance. Um, so I think this is this is the very important bottom line. Build feedback loops. And we've been mostly talking about the, the biggest of them all, which is the one from development to the actual customer, and then you know from, from the voice of the customer back to us. But of course, there are many intermediate steps. Um, you know, from, from unit tests through product demos, uh, you know, build them all, remove uncertainty, enable yourself to learn and then react to what you've learned. This is at the core of, of Agile, not whether you do, I don't know, stand-ups or sprints or, or something. That, that is entirely beside the point. That is just, you know, um, ceremony. Yeah, yeah. We will, we will also have an episode in the future where we where we uh, you know throw throw Scrum in the gutter and, and give it a few kicks. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> uh, but maybe talk about uh, you know this maybe the business risk of your business not adapting, not engaging in any in any speculative experiments, uh, and your business stagnating uh, and essentially getting left behind the market. Maybe. You know, we have some points that we want to talk to you about that. Maybe address that a bit. Yeah. So essentially, this goes to what I was just saying, right? Um, establish this culture of experimentation, of continuous improvement. Um, and that really is something that you need to cultivate because if you just go and say, yeah, yeah, we'll run a couple of experiments, I guarantee you, you're going to be like, um, I don't actually know what would be a good experiment because I've, like I have developed this muscle. You really need to put yourself in a position to even be able to safely conduct experiments and, you know, try stuff. And even if it doesn't work out the way you planned, it's, it's not a big, not a big issue. Like it'll be a bit of a disappointment, but, but it shouldn't actually create a problem. Uh, let me remind you, if you already know the outcome of what you're doing, it's not an experiment. You're cheating. An experiment is defined by you, you, you have an inkling of what might happen, but you don't actually know. Right. And, you know, I'll point out from a, from a business standpoint, in the long run, not doing speculative work is extremely risky. It basically guarantees that in the long run, your business will stagnate and get left behind. Yeah, um, you're going to be stuck in a local optimum. Right. And this is, I, uh, I read it a long time ago. It hasn't, I haven't read it recently, but uh, this is, I think, the, one of the thesis of The Innovator's Dilemma, um, a very well-known book in product circles where you have a company, I, I might butcher this, but, but forgive me, you have a company that is very successful in a certain market and the market is changing out from under them and they need to essentially take the risk of developing new product lines that will cannibalize their already existing, very successful, very profitable market line product lines. But if they don't try that, they're almost guaranteed to be eaten alive by their competitors. 
So yes, it is a risk to spend a lot of money, you know, developing something new, trying something new, but you're weighing that against the almost certain, it's not even a risk, it's almost a certainty um, that your competitors will do that instead of you. And for, for certain market, like, you know, markets get to these little inflection points, these big inflection points where things change, the market conditions change very rapidly. And if you're not prepared ahead of that, you know, your business will go under. Um, and that's, that's just part of the difficulty is trying to see that coming, but building into your organization, you know, a healthy R and D part, R and D department, um, a culture of at, at all aspects in the development organization, trying new things and seeing how they turn out and getting feedback from them that future proofs your company that gives your company that immunization against market changes. Cause you can get feedback on them earlier. What do you think? I completely agree. And I think this is exactly where Agile really shines because if you haven't enabled yourself to to iterate quickly, you know, to, to do small, fairly low-risk, low-cost iterations, then doing this change, this speculative work will in fact be extremely risky because you need to bet the farm. You can't you, you can't iterate your way out of your local optimum. You you must take a leap of faith. Um, but on the other hand, if you set your process and your product and everything up in such a way that you can go in smaller, safer steps, you know, then all of a sudden becomes it becomes really harmless. It's almost like cheating. Like if you if you do it right, it becomes <laughs> it becomes unfairly easy. So so far, I think we've been kind of vague about all of this, haven't we? And we said, yeah, yeah, you should just totally de-risk things but how do you actually do this and uh, i think that is the art of a good product owner right of um slicing your product into nice size pieces that um you know that that manage the the risk that is inherent in, in product development so essentially you're talking about uh, user stories being too large when you're looking at what to work on next, is that is that what you're talking about? Not necessarily too large, but but sort of an adjacent point of sizing your user stories or, or building your user stories, I should say, according to can I use this story to capture some value, to lock it in, to not have it be like speculative anymore, but actually make it part of a shippable product, or can I create stories that tackle some technical risk that I've become aware of? You know, can I can I have a story that makes it really clear whether we are able to build it this way or not? And in either case, we're one step further. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the the important art of product ownership or product management to really be very conscious about the the risk inherent in stories and and sort of actively controlling. Okay, what are we going to address next? And you can, and it can go either way. So unfortunately, it's going to be the sort of uh, waffly either or answer. Either you say, you know, we should do the really risky things first to gain clarity, and maybe that's the right approach for you. Or maybe you say the exact opposite and say we're going to go for the low hanging fruit first, so that we can lock in some partial value. Maybe we'll never go to a hundred percent. Maybe not even close. Who knows? But we've got more than zero. And maybe that's what counts for us. That, you know, that that depends on the on the 
specific case, is there really value in a product that essentially stagnates at like half of what you envision it to be? Because it turns out you were just too ambitious and you can't pull it off. Or is that actually a nice thing? Like, you know, we're going to build the first 30% of this product and it already provides value to the users. Awesome. And then in, in, a, in, a, in some sense, who cares whether we tackle the remaining 70%? We've already done something good for our users and for our wallets. Right. Yeah. So, so getting back to those three different categories in the beginning, the execution risk, product risk, and technical risk, I would say if you, product risk is, is the most important one to solve first. Like you need to, you need to have as much confidence as possible in what is, what the user is actually going to (laughs) buy. And so if you, if you have via whatever methods, um, um, prototypes or, or, you know, some minimum, some MVP or something where you, you have high confidence. This is what, this is what we need to build. And then within that, there's now items that are technically risky. You know, we know we have to build this particular feature in order to sell this product. And we don't know if we can pull that off. Then all of a sudden that technical risk is the highest priority I would think to tackle because that puts the entire project um, at risk. If you, if you don't, if you have something that is technically, you're not sure if it's feasible, but it's not strictly necessary, then I would push that off and do the stuff that you, that the user will buy that you know you can do first, and then start exploring those technically risky items that are not strictly necessary. Would you agree with that? That plan? Oh, absolutely. I I think that, I think you captured that excellently. Uh, this is exactly the, the the way to approach it, right? Focus on capturing value to the user because at, at the end, this is the risk that we're managing in terms of Agile. Uh, can we successfully deliver value to the user? And all of the other stuff that we're doing is, is sort of like just a function of this question. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah, so I was so I I I think it might be good to transition into uh war story mode a little bit. So, I can tell you that in my field, which is medical devices, um medical IoT is the hot topic. Everyone wants to get on the Internet of Things bandwagon in the medical device world. Uh and a lot of people who are who are designing medical products that really have no business being on the internet any more than I think a refrigerator has business being on the internet. Uh, I, I think that's a fad that doesn't provide any real value. Uh, and I, I think, think the for a, internet is a fad. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, then we're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> no, th- so there are there are plenty of use cases where where I think um, having a connected device is is absolutely wonderful. But there are many use cases. You know, I have I have a surgical tool sitting on my desk it's pretty low value to connect to that internet. Yes, you could do over the air updates and, and fix problems in the field and debug in the field. And that's great. But a surgeon can get a lot of value out, out of this device. If it's just not connected and dumb and performing its function admirably in the operating room. So if someone were creating a new surgical device, I would, and, and it didn't strictly need to be, connected, 
I would say get your first version of the product out there without tackling any of that complexity. Because as soon as you connect it to the internet, like the, the technical risk explodes. I have a feeling that most products like that will sell just fine without incorporating that technical risk. So that's kind of a concrete example. What, what do you think? Yeah, exactly. Um, that reminded me of, of this helicopter that I worked on quite a while ago where they did something essentially similar. They, you know, they had this, this awesome flight management system and it was all like integrated and, and it could control off the ra- all of the radios and you'd have presets and, and scenarios and whatnot. But the first iteration of the helicopter, well, just didn't have any of that. They just they just used what what was supposed to be the backup control panels in case the the flight management system crashed or something. They used that to control the radios, uh, so you had to sort of manually dial in the frequencies just like your dan- grandpa did. Um, and of course, it flew just fine, and of course, it sold just fine. And then eventually, they added the capability of managing all of that centrally through the flight management system. Um, and that, I think, was an absolutely reasonable approach. Don't delay delay delivery of this helicopter just because you can't control the radios yet through like through the computer. I mean, sure, it's it's cool and, and actually helpful. Like it, it reduces workload on the pilots. That is a, a valid reason. But first, let's get this thing flying. <laughs> well said. And it's, it's really funny that you bring that up. So my first job out of grad school was also working on helicopters, on unmanned helicopters in my case. Um, and I think even some of my former coworkers uh, uh, listened to this podcast. And overall, it was it was an unmanned helicopter that was a a, a quantum leap forward in terms of performance. Uh, you know, endurance, time aloft. Uh, the in particular, like the amount of time this thing could stay in the air was far and above what any helicopter before it could really do. Um, but the the entire company, like no technical risk, was too too big for this company to take. Like there was this little tiny startup. It got eventually swallowed by Boeing. And after 10 years, the, the thing failed. It never got, it never went to market because they, they, they took any technical risk possible if it had the possibility of paying off in terms of eking out more performance. But in the end, I think the weight of that, of all of those technical risks, uh, Crash the product. The, uh, crash yeah. the product. I mean, the, it, it never it never could be reliable enough to actually survive in the field. I mean, they, like this this by the time I got there it was probably a sixty person startup. You know, they were working on their own diesel engine program to build a diesel engine from scratch. A a that again was two times more power per weight than any diesel engine on the market. They had built all of their own actuators. They had designed their own operating system to run on all of the electronic boards in the helicopter. Like every single thing was custom from the ground up to eke out. Is that scope creep I'm smelling? Not really. I, I well, yeah, I suppose, or or yak shaving or whatever. But it's, I think it was the that pursuit of performance without regard to technical risk. Um, 
And I think, you know, in, in terms of applying the principles we're talking about to that, it was, yes, you do need, like some technical risk is absolutely inherent in that product. If you want to put a helicopter out there that has, you know, much greater endurance than anything that's been done before. Yes, you are trying new technologies, but let's, let's limit the technical risk a little bit and say, okay, there's two or three core new innovative technologies and the rest let's use boring stuff off the shelf. Yeah. Um, and yes, and we'll get, is- we won't get quite the performance improvement that we wanted, but we'll get the damn product out the door. <laughs> and exactly. And then we can iterate. And then you can replace there? your actuator. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, this really reminds me of um, of Lockheed Skunk Works, just to stay with the um, aviation angle for a bit longer. Sure. Where they, you know, they, they built all of those supposedly impossible airplanes, like the U-2, which was the highest flying plane, and the SR-71, which is, to this day, I think the fastest plane ever built. And they... Mostly did that by de-risking as much as they could by, you know, using whatever off-the-shelf parts they found laying around in the shed. Like, oh, yeah, we need a jet engine. Let's go rummage around there. Okay, fine, we've got this type of jet engine. Fine, let's stick it in. And and this is how you get to, like, hull dimensions. Yeah, this was the engine we had lying around. So that's what went in. And this is how they got to a cycle time of 18 months for highly experimental aircraft projects and typically cycle times are more like 10 years in the aviation industry so they the term agile didn't exist at the time but i i'm adamant that they were an agile organization getting something complete and getting feedback from it as soon as possible Exactly. Let's let's get this thing in the air, and then and then we'll see where we are. Yep. And they pull it off repeatedly. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think. Uh, yeah. The the success of that organization speaks for itself. And I and there is something that is really important to me, and that I can't stress enough, because so many people fall prey to this. I think very very dangerous misconception. I, you know, I, I had a conversation with people from Siemens two weeks ago where this came up. I had this conversation with a person from Western Digital yesterday where the same thing came up, where, you know, you've got experienced old engineers who take pride in their work, as they should, and for whom it is very important to build good, in fact, excellent pro- pro- products. And now you come up with your fancy agile ideas and you say, yeah, you know, we need to be faster. And And they will say, what do you mean? We shouldn't build good products anymore. And this is, of course, not at all what I mean. But the point is, instead of doing everything perfectly, the opposite of that is not doing everything sloppily. The opposite of that is doing, or the proposal that I'm making is to do a little bit perfectly. Yeah. And then do the next little bit perfectly. And then do the next little bit perfectly. That's a that's a great way to put that. Yes, and this is so important because so many people say, ah, so we're not allowed to like do good work anymore. This is all about speed and uh, like, saving money, isn't it? No, this is like, those will be side effects if you do your work properly. The speed is purely a side effect of 
applying agile principles of enabling yourself to iterate, to manage risk, to gather feedback quickly. Yeah, we're not saying, uh, yeah, if you say, if the old engineers say, we're used to doing a certain quantity of work to a certain level of quality, we are not suggesting you compromise on quality, just the opposite. We are, subje- we are suggesting that you ship less quantity to the same quality or higher standards that you did before. Yes, indeed. And that in and of itself will approve, improve quality because you will get feedback sooner and be able to improve. Exactly. Or, or react to, to unexpected risks or what have you, security right. breaches, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. All right. I think that's a pretty good place to uh, draw the line in the sand. What do you think? I think so. That was a fun episode. I agree. All right. So, Luca, where can people go to find you online? Well, the easiest way is to go to luca.engineer. Luca is L-U-C-A, and I trust you can spell engineer. Um, and there you can find my contact info. You can find blog posts, etc., etc. Please do reach out. I love hearing from people. Jeff, what about you? Likewise, please go to jeffgable.com, and you can find out how to get in touch with me there, and please do. All right. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.